0: Um, Just so you know, um, one of the main resources I'm using for this series is a book called Why the Reformation Still Matters by Michael Reeves and Tim Chester. Pastor Patrick talked about it this morning. It's an excellent read. It's probably one of the best history slash theology books I've read in the past decade. So it's worth picking up. On Kindle, it's only like, I think, $7.99. Or if you like a hard copy, I think it's only $11.99. It's worth picking up. Um, Today, we're going to be talking about sin. Yay, happy topic. Okay. Um so what is sin? What is sin? So sin is the gr- in the Greek is the word for missing the mark, missing the mark. So when an archer would string his arrow, pull it and release it, if he hit anything outside the target, they would say sin or missing the mark. Well, this is a good word definition. And at least a beginning source of what the Greek term sin means, that's clearly not the end of the definition when it comes to being a theological term, right? And that's what we're going to talk about today. What is the theological definition of sin and why is knowing this still matters? So that's what we're going to talk about today. So let me pray. Um, Hopefully you have your back so you can follow along. Father God, as we kind of calm down from playing games and hanging out together and laughing and handing up cards and... Um, Lord, may we uh, be able to focus for these next 20 minutes um, as we discuss sin, as we discuss what sin is, as, as we discuss how sin impacts our life and really dominates it, Lord. Um, and, and now we talk about how uh, the only freedom from sin is you. In your son's name. Amen. So Martin Luther, the guy that we talked the talks named after, he grew up with a very little view of sin. It was not that he refused to take sin seriously. It was quite the opposite. Sin, he was taught, is the foul smell that attracts the devil. It's the weight that would drag us to hell. It's the cause of all misery. It's the wages of our death. Yet, while he knew it was a severe problem, he did not realize how deep of a one it was. And there is such a false sense of self today when it comes to sin. Since you were a little kid, people have come up and tapped you on the head and said, aren't you a good little boy or girl? And that false notion that I am good has continued to dominate yourself as you look in the mirror every morning. Some of that, yes, is a coping mechanism because to live with the idea that I'm a sinful wretch most days can be at times overwhelming. But this idea that we're all just good Most of the world, they're good. Most people, they're good. Dominates our culture. We only think the other side of the culture or the political lines. They're the bad ones, right? But we always place ourselves, or we at least try to, always place ourselves in the good camp. And not only do we try to place ourselves in the good camp, most of the time in this major social media, we try to brag about how we are in The good camp. The people that believed slavery was okay prior to the 1870s, they were the bad people. We're the good people now. The people that believe women were second-class citizens prior to the 1930s, those were bad people. But we're good people now. The people that believe war would solve all problems before the Cold War, those were bad people. But we're good people now. The people that believed their political candidate was more morally put together prior to the 2016 election. The people on the other side, well, they, they were the bad people. The side I was on were the good people. The other people, they're bad. You better be on the right side of history or people are going to look back at you and condemn you, just like we do, because we're the good people and you're the bad people. We love putting ourselves in the good camp. We love taking the moral high ground. You know? How much better do you think the world would be off if we all just realized we're all screwed up and we're all sinners? How much more unified do you think it would be if we just pointed to the elephant in the room and said, ah, yes, the elephant called sin and sinner in the room is me? And you, and you, and you, and you, and you. But we don't. We ignore it. We run from it. And it doesn't stop there. This is your first fill-in-the-blank. Oh, This is your second fill-in-the-blank. Your first fill-in-the-blank is we are always the good people. That was your first fill-in-the-blank. We are always the good people. The second fill-in-the-blank talks about how it doesn't stop there. We only call things right and wrong when it suits us right. It only, we all only call things right and wrong when it suits us right. If, if what we want to get away with in regards to sin doesn't feel like it morally works with our, in our framework, we do two things. One, we claim moral ambiguity. I'm going to define that in a second. Or two, we say this. Well, I have a special situation that allows me to sin. Okay. By moral ambiguity, I mean phrases like, well, that's true for you and not for me. <clears throat> well, there's no such thing really as right and wrong. It's just a social construct. Morally, moral is determined by what is culturally acceptable, and, well, I'm just past that. And if you believe Nietzsche, then you're right, right? You get to choose what's right and wrong at the end of the day. There is no moral standard. But if you believe a moral standard because you live in the world that we live in and we're all pointing to a moral standard whether we want to or not, then you have to believe there is some basis for it. And if there is some basis for it, then you have to deal with it. Or B, I have a special situation. I know that Scripture says not to cheat, But everyone in my pre-cal class cheats. It's the only way everyone passes. I have a special situation. I know the Bible says to honor my parents, but Jesus didn't have to live with my mom and dad. Right? I have a special situation. I know it says to love your neighbor, but my neighbor is literally the Antichrist. So I don't have to love them. I get to hate them. I know God says not to be unequally yoked, but my non-Christian girlfriend is an 11 out of 10, and the book of, and the book of Second Opinions says that's okay. Like we always are, like okay, but no, I have this special situation. So we don't even mention sin. Like we run from it, we ignore it, we flaunt our perceived goodness. But what we rarely ever do is your next fill in the blank, and that is deal with it. We never deal with it. We run around it. We don't deal with it. But AJ, I don't have to deal with it. Sin really isn't a big problem. I mean, I'm a pretty good person. If you're ever in a situation and someone says sin isn't a big problem, you need to simply ask the question, then why haven't you fixed it yet? Why haven't you fixed it if sin isn't a big problem in your life, if you're not overcome by your own evil desires and wishes and wants and wills, why haven't you dealt with it? But it isn't just the disease, as Martin said. It isn't just the chain, as early Martin said. It's something harder. So let's jump to another idea. How do we become righteous? Righteous. How do we become the person who is holy and does not sin? Guys, try to, try to focus. How do we overcome sin? If you remember, last week we talked about the difference between being a sinner and sin being a disease, a state of a being versus a weakness, the idea of a hospital versus a, a law room. Okay? The medieval culture viewed becoming righteous or holy, or good, as steps along a path. According to the Greek philosopher Aristotle, we become righteous by doing righteous deeds, he had claimed, or we become just by doing just acts. That's how we do it. We do righteous deeds to become righteous. This is the idea of self-help that's taught in tons of churches across America, or places that would call themselves churches. Uh, You can find self-help books at every Walmart store that you go to in the corner. It's not new. That's why this is modern, okay? It's if you do enough of the right things in the area that you're doing wrong things that you'll eventually overcome your sin problem. I would have come up with my own analogy, but the one in the book I mentioned earlier is just too good. It goes something like this, okay? It's an analogy. It's too good. Let's imagine that I have a friend, and we can call him Tim, okay? Tiny Tim. And let's say that this entirely fictional character has one serious character flaw, and that I have patiently put up with as his friend, and that is is that he hates grannies. He hates grannies. Whatever he sees, a granny. A strange ache wells up inside of him to shove under the... He just wants to shove her under the nearest passing juggernaut. Now, as his friend, of course, I want to help him. Here is the advice... I would give him if I were going to use the Aristotelian method. Tim, I would say, you become a granny lover by doing granny loving deeds. So if you will help ten grannies safely cross the street every day for one month, then you'll rid yourself of that rather unsociable phobia of yours. Of course, it would be risky advice to give Tim. So much contact with sweet senior citizens might simply aggravate the condition. You might do more harm than good. In fact, this is just how Luther found it, though without grannies. For years, he lived by the maxim, we become righteous by doing righteous deeds. And as a monk, he desperately wanted uh, all the righteous deeds he could imagine. Fasting, praying, pilgrimage, monkery. What he slowly came to realize was the dream of becoming truly righteous by such a simple change of behavior was just that, an elusive dream. All that is is an elusive dream. Holding its reward just ever out of reach, its constantly promised righteousness without ever delivering it, all the time exacting a heavier and heavier behavioral demand. In other words, this is your next fill in the blank, dangling the hope of being righteous before him, Luther, while repeatedly giving him more deeds to do, it gradually enslaved him. It gradually enslaved him. And I think this is one side of the coin. For some, there's the bitterness that I can't overcome sin. And it's sinning again and getting in that pet sin again and going, oh, why is this own me? And then for some of you, it's the other side of the coin, which is equally as horrifying. And that is that of the Pharisee, which you wake up every morning and you go throughout your day and you think, "Ah, I have done it. I have overcome sin. There are two terrifying things this Halloween season. Three, if you include any kid dressed as Pennywise from the It! movie. But two things that are terrifying this Halloween season. One is the person that is burdened by sin and doesn't realize that he can get rid of it. And the other equally terrifying person is the person that believes they are righteous. One is blind and the other one is imprisoned. So to combat the times, Martin, like any good pastor, he published his thoughts. And while the 95 thesis got all the good press, even today, most of you have never heard of Martin's 97th thesis that he wrote a few weeks prior. It's the prequel. The 97th thesis was an attack on Aristotle's view of sin and righteousness. In it, Martin clears up the problem with sin and this is what he says it's your next fill in the blank we do not become righteous by doing righteous deeds but having been made righteous we do righteous deeds we do not become righteous by doing righteous deeds but having been made righteous we do righteous deeds It's the 500-year-old version of the statement I say over and over and over and over again. There's a difference between loving your dad because you want your dad to say I love you and loving your dad because you already know he does. I mean, there's a difference between mowing the lawn so that your dad will say I love you and mowing the lawn because you know your dad already does. That's like the 500-year-old version right there. What are you working for? What's the reason, the purpose of your work, your deeds? You see, our sin is a deep problem, so deep that you cannot reach in to fix it. Look, It's like a repair job on a large car, right? Sometimes you have to drop the mount to reach the problem in the engine, except you can't do it. You need someone with the tools to do it. Christ is the only one who has the tools to fix your sin issue. To continue the car analogy, our sin issue is that we run on gasoline, and Christ drops the mount and changes us to run on electricity. Like, we're not even running on the same system. That's why he calls all our righteous deeds filthy rags, because they're covered in oil and gas. And our wills to do what's right are are different. Our motives are not to serve God if we are outside of God. And we begin to hate sin, not crave it when we run on this new system. And that's where the crux of the issue lies. People want to be able to deal with their sin on their own. They don't want to believe that they're helpless in any way. But again, if we could deal with our sin, why can't we? The great theologian Erasmus, who translated the New Testament to Greek and made it available via the printing press, took issue with Martin's view of sin. He did did not like the idea that we were enslaved to sin. So in 1524, Erasmus wrote on the freedom of the will, arguing that sin is not something that affects us so deeply and powerfully that it actually enslaves us. We can never earn our true merit before God, Erasmus admitted, but God is prepared to take our good intentions and so treat our attempts as better than they really are and so worthy of our merit. I hate to break it to you, Erasmus. The road to hell is littered with good intentions. It is as if God takes the molehills of our righteousness and treats them as mountains. No, he doesn't. He takes our sin, which is a bunch of pits, not molehills, and does not treat them as mountains. He treats them as pits. But if Luther was right, then in ourselves we can produce no righteousness to count towards our salvation. What credit can anyone have with God? That's the point, Erasmus. Nothing. You can have no credit before a holy God. With this argument, Erasmus seems to have entirely missed Luther's answer. That we who have no righteousness of our own can have righteousness of Christ credited to us. It's not ours, it's Christ's righteousness that's credited. While Martin didn't have time to respond to all the criticisms on his theology, it's Erasmus, it's the big dog that he's got to respond to. Um, Why? Because Erasmus did not sin in the original Greek definition. Um, Erasmus had hit the target, the center of the things that all evolved around, this idea of we're enslaved to it that we cannot do good. Martin wrote on the bondage of the will in response to Erasmus' freedom of the will, because he's got a sense of humor. The title Luther gave his work on the bondage of the will commonly throws people, I make free cho- choices, don't I? I don't have a bonded will. Is Luther saying that I can't do what I want? No. Look, if your favorite ice cream flavor is strawberry, if you think strawberry is the best ice cream flavor, first of all, you're wrong. But second, if it is and you're offered strawberry ice cream or if you're offered selections and that's your favorite, you're going to always choose that. Because that's what you want, right? You're wrong. But that's what you want, okay? Um, You choose what you want. This is uh, the next fill in the blank. There is never a time when you choose to do something that goes against your will. There is never. There's never. There's never. There's never. There's never. There's never a time that you choose to do something that goes against your will. Did you hear me say never? There's never. Okay, it's a never ending story. Great 80s flick. Okay? You always have a choice. You always choose what you want. Well, AJ, there's tons of times I don't choose what I want to do, my folks make me do it. False. You might abhor whatever chore or test or task that you have to do. But I can promise you, you always have a choice in the matter. If it's that homework assignment that's just miserable, oh, I don't want to do it, AJ. How could you say it's my will? You bet you want to do it because you know what the consequences are. And given the choice between dealing with your parents and not doing the homework and doing the homework, you choose what your will wants every time. Okay, I'm willing to do it with my parents on this one. Okay, I'll do do this thing in homework. You might hate the chore, but it's either complete the chore or lose the privilege or the allowance, right? You might not want to have that conversation to break up with the significant other, but it's either have that conversation or go on awkward dates till God knows when. You always choose what you want to do, always. There is never a time when you choose to do something that goes against your will. And that's biblical. The heart of man plans his ways. Proverbs 16.9. See, here's the issue. This is your next fill in the blank, and you can circle this one. You can highlight it. You can tattoo it on your arm, whatever you want. So the problem is not the freedom of our will. The problem is not the freedom of our will. The problem is what our will is free to do. The problem is what our will is free to do. And that's why we sin. Because we choose to sin. It's not because we're forced into it. When a man is without God, the Spirit of God, he does not do evil against his will as if he were taken by the scruff of the neck and forced to it. But nor is it like, you're not sitting there naturally weighing the odds. Okay, I can do good, I can do evil. No, you just do it. Okay? You don't do it because it's sensible. It's because you're carrying out the desires of your body. Ephesians 2.3 We choose sin because it's what we want. We naturally love darkness. John 3.19 And so each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. James 1.14 and 15 And that's the crux. Outside the grace of God, we never actually want God. At least not the real God of the Bible. We might want the God that we make up that might look like the God of the Bible. Like that looks like the guy on the Sistine Chapel. But as long as we can control him, as long as God's my co-pilot, I'm okay with that God. But the God of the Bible that, that needs to literally breathe new life into me to save me from my sin, I don't want to deal with. Because I think I can be my God and deal with my sin on my own. That's the culture you live in. Everyone thinks they're their own answer to sin. Erasmus saw the problem of sin much like the problem of sloth, that we're naturally lazy to deal with it. Luther says, we don't want to deal with it. We like it. We like sin. Martin could achieve an outward appearance of righteousness, and he certainly did, but it would be nothing more than a hollow sham made of self dependent self worship and self righteousness. I was talking with a student earlier this week, and they were just confessing their sin like really kind of like struggling with it they needed to be reminded why God allows us to sin even as we're saints I knew them well and asked them how they felt when they no longer dealt with their pet sin when you had conquered sin how do they feel and they felt like they had overcome it and I said well how does that make you feel spiritually and they said puffed up arrogant like a little Pharisee self-righteous I did it on my own Have you considered that one of the reasons that God allows you to sin is to remind you of your need of him? Of your need of the gospel? That he uses sin to remind you that you are not God. Because in your fallen nature, when you are able or think you overcome things on your own, that's your first thought. I did it. more righteous now i've arrived look we need radical change and radical help and that's exactly what luther shows us that's why god made us a new creation he doesn't just help us fight sin even though that is the power of the cross but he changes our desire towards sin we are see our sin now as something to detest instead of something to enjoy So even as we're in the midst of our sin, now that we're new creations, we see it as sin instead of that toy that we pull out in the corner and play with occasionally. Lastly, it changes our relationship with God. It changes our relationship with God. Look, if sin is just something to be fought, then we just need to follow a set of rules, right? But the Bible isn't just a set of rules. God just didn't give us, like, a bunch of rules up on a wall, and that's what we're supposed to do. The Bible is not a rule book. Behavior and character were what mattered to Erasmus and were what mattered to the medieval church. A relationship with God does not feature in Erasmus's 22 rules for the Christian soldier. Think about that. A relationship with God does not feature into Erasmus's 22 Rules of the Christian Soldier. For Luther, on the other hand, the church is more like a family. And this is your last fill in the blank. Knowing God the Father is what matters above all. Knowing God the Father is what matters above all. Now the word of God is no longer a rule book, but the living word that brings us life and helps us know the Father.